You are now listening to the November 18th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Let's Read the Bible, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Let's Read the Bible. listeners, we are proceeding with Let's Read the Bible. I'm Nicole. The Bible provides us with many warnings about sexual morality. Proverbs, in particular, warns us about it frequently. However, most of these warnings are directed towards men. Today, we will read Proverbs chapter 7, where Solomon begins by saying, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Does this mean that sexual morality is only limited to men and not women? Of course not. The principle applies to both sexes. When the Bible speaks of sexual morality, it primarily refers to physical sexual activity, but it also encompasses the immorality of our souls. So what does sexual morality mean? Physical sexual morality refers to all physical sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage, where two people have been pledged to love only each other. Spiritual sexual morality, on the other hand, means loving something other than God. Proverbs 7 describes the temptation of sexual morality that comes to one person. Proverbs 7 describes the consequences of someone succumbing to the temptation of sexual morality. So how does Proverbs 7 describe the temptation of sexual morality? It describes a predatory woman who is seducive with her words, a table set with delicacies, a bed adorned with Egyptian linens, myrrh, and cinnamon. In other words, The temptation that leads us into sexual morality appears to be pleasant to hear, eat, and enjoy. However, what happens if we give in to this temptation and follow the seducing woman? Proverbs 7.22 compares the one who follows the woman into immorality to a steer going to the slaughter or a fool being led to the stocks for punishment. Verse 23 gives even more shocking words. For lack of discipline, they will die, led astray by their great folly. Temptations that lead us to destruction appear good, sound good, and feel good. We need to examine where such temptations will lead us. Will it lead us to a closer relationship with God, or will it take us further away from Him? Will it lead us closer or further away from our spouse? Making wise decisions involves thinking about the consequences at the end result. Let us read the Bible with an open mind and heart, seeking wisdom and discernment. Let us read the Bible, Proverbs chapter 7, 1 to 27. My son, Keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. 
Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, "You are my sister," and call insight your intimate friend. To keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, willy of heart. She is loud and wayward; her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. With a bold face, she says to him, "I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come." Let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home; he has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seducive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces his liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways; do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain. Are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death.
Next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary PHX in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Thanksgiving. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. When I was a little kid, I must have been like maybe 12 or 13, I started filing a filing system, filing things on Bible topics. I was doing that. I have to understand, God called me when I was a very little guy to this calling of teaching his word. It's very clear, God called me, use a scripture and all. I could hardly read, but uh, it was a call of God in my life. So it's significant, I guess. I started, grandma gave me this little metal file cabinet thing with a hinged lid. And so I started filing things. A to Z, different, not much in the Z for many years. So I carried that. Well, 
My filing system now has gone from that to 15 five drawer cabinets, you know, from A to Z, every topic you could think about. And then every book of the Bible has files. And so anything I teach or go through, I always put in there. I have my own Google, you guys. I can just Google myself. And I I go in there. It's it's a ton of stuff. So I'm in the T section this week. I'm looking for something that was kind of random anyway. And I saw Thanksgiving and there were three big files on Thanksgiving. I thought, oh, that's way too much stuff on Thanksgiving. I need space. So I took them out. I'm going to throw away anything I don't think I'll need. So I'm going through it and I am tossing stuff and I, I got it down to, I think, two files. But as I'm coming to the last file, I'm seeing some messages that I had done in the past. And what I saw, something came up and I saw, oh my goodness, this is an old bulletin and in it was a message. So here is our first year bulletin, okay? And uh, this was November 21, 1982, okay? So a day off of 40 years. We're celebrating the 40th anniversary, right? And so I happened to find Calvary's very first Thanksgiving message, the very first message I ever gave here when we started the church. Isn't that incredible? So we're going to teach that very first message again. Is that cool? The very first Thanksgiving message that we had here. Well, you know what I heard? I heard about uh, an order of monks who maintained vows of silence except for once a year when they could go to the abbot, who was the leader of the monastery, and they could answer one question. And so the time came for a monk who had just joined the order to come to the abbot. The abbot says, well, how have things been for you this year? And the monk responded, food bad. The abbot prayed for him. On the second year, the monk came to see the abbot, and the abbot asked him, how have things been for you? And he said, bed hard. The abbot prayed for him, and he went on. The third year rolled around, and the abbot asked again, well, how are things going for you? And he said, robe scratchy. On the fourth year, of course, the time came for him to see the abbot, and he was asked, how have you been doing this year? And he said, I quit. And the abbot replied, I'm not surprised because all you've done since you've gotten here is complain, complain, complain. (laughs) Too often, I'm afraid that God feels like that abbot. Many Christians are complaining. We live defeated, discouraged lives. And rather than dwelling on the blessings that God has given to us, rather than giving thanks For what God has done through a year, we're dominated by the things that bother us. We're not thanksgivers. I read that thanksgiving relieves stress, anxiety. It's like it changes your chemistry somehow. When you're thinking not about everything that's bad, but at the good things that God has given to you. This may be a no-brainer, but thanksgiving, first of all, begins by receiving some benefit from somebody, right? And secondly, it is giving thanks to the person for the benefit you have received. And if anybody has received benefits, it's us as believers in Jesus. Amen? Amen. We have received so many benefits. We can give our holy God a honoring, good, full thanksgiving for the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. I want us to remember always 
There are two great motivators in this world. One is guilt and the other is grace. We often, I would think a lot of our existence, we live motivated by guilt. Well, I should, I ought to, I should, I'd better. If I don't, oh no, I could have, or you know, we're motivated by guilt. And it can get people going. And in churches, in a spiritual place, in an area, guilt works moving people along. Let me tell you, you can guilt God's people into doing a whole lot of things, into giving, into going, into serving, into all of this stuff. You can guilt trip people. You certainly can. But the other great motivator is grace. Grace may work slower, but it works thoroughly and it works internally and it works intensely. Where guilt just gets by. Guilt just does what has to be done. When you're motivated by guilt, you go, okay, I have to do this, I've done it. All right, it's done, goodbye. But when you're motivated by God's grace, when you're motivated by the fact that God has saved us undeservingly, when you're motivated by that, slowly begin to see, well, I want to do these things for the Lord. I want to be with God. I want to be with God's people. I, I want to open the word of God. I want to serve the Lord. Why? Because I want to serve the Lord. So the grace of God, the cross of Jesus Christ, brings us the grace of Jesus Christ. I was thinking about how important it is for us to understand the cross. In the cross, at the cross, Jesus gave us everything he deserved and took everything that we deserve. He deserved to be right with his father, to be, have a heavenly home. He deserved righteousness, joy, peace. We deserve what he accepted on the cross. Punishment, condemnation. He, he accepted the guilt of the whole world. If I have anything to be thankful for, it's the grace of God and what he's given to me. How about you guys? Think about what God has given to us. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Now, I've, I've discovered that one read, way to read a scripture that might be kind of uh, familiar to me is to read it through and emphasize a different area of the scripture. I want us to emphasize every different word. So let's start with emphasizing thanks. So we're going to read it, thanks be to God. So here we go. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Now let's read B. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Now it'll be God. No, it'll be two. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Then it's God. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Thanks be to God, what? For his inexpressible gift. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. 
Reading it that way, don't you feel different things? Don't you kind of see different things? You look at things a little bit differently, don't you? Then when you just read it, uh, when we were, thanks be to God for one translation says for his indescribable gift. Another translation says, thank God for this gift, his gift. No language can praise it enough. If you understand this verse, it's going to make you somebody who is a thanks giver. And why are we to give thanks? Because he's given us an inexpressible gift. And the gift, of course, is what? What do you say? The gift is what? Eternal life. That's exactly right. For by grace you're saved through faith. It is uh, the gift of God, not of your own works, but all that God has done for us. So it's a gift of God so that no one can boast. It's significant that the word for gift, thanks, are the same words in Greek. The word charis, C-H-R-I-S. Charis is translated sometimes gift, and it's translated other times as thanks. It's like you can't separate God's grace from his gift or the gift from God's grace. Just kind of see what I'm saying? The problem that a lot of believers have forgotten, I think, What they have is all based on God's grace, the relationship you have with God. Maybe grace hasn't been your focus anymore. It's like, I was saved by grace. Look, I was saved by grace here, but now I've grown on, and I'm over here in my experience, and and it's not about God's grace so much anymore. It's about your behavior. Now, I'm all for good, righteous behavior. We're all for that. But when you think your right standing with God is based on that, your, your experience with God is going to up and down and up and down, and you're going to stand yourself in a corner because you've been bad this week, and you're going to not feel like you can be around God. You're going to feel like Adam and Eve, you know, hid themselves from God because they didn't think God, you know, they couldn't be around God because of their sin. When we're saved, we're saved by grace. And we continue to live in grace, even though our experience will go up and down. Like, I wish when we were saved, look, my life would become perfect. But when I'm saved, what usually happens? You're saved, and then there is this growth. And hopefully the trend of our lives is always this way, but it's the ups and downs. That's when we have to understand that our relationship with God is always based on his grace, no matter how long you've walked with Jesus Christ. The biggest reason is because God says, I refuse to have a relationship with you at all if it's not by my grace. See, it's not anything I've chosen. God says, no, the only way is you needing my unmerited favor. So then you understand, guys, that our very relationship with God is always based on his unmerited favor, amen? I'm thankful for that. And rather than make me think, oh, I can live like the devil because I'm under God's grace, it makes me want to live a holy, godly life. The scripture says the grace of God teaches us to abstain from unrighteousness and ungodly things. The scriptures tell us to grow in grace, and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's always the message, I build my life the foundation of grace, so that when you mess up, like maybe you did this week, and the devil comes and he condemns you, right? He tempts you, then he blames you. What do you say? 
You better have your relationship with God based in his grace. Now, I want us to look at another passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57. Another reason to give thanks. Let's read it. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's say it a little louder. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Only Christians can say that, amen? We don't want to forget the blessings of God's grace. Now, what is the victory? I'm thinking the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as I'm looking at that sermon, I'm seeing the illustration we went to. I'm going, this is perfect. And so what is an example of the kind of victory we have in Jesus Christ? I want us to go back into the scripture, way back to 2 Chronicles 20. Israel had good kings and bad kings, more bad kings than good kings. Uh, The southern kingdom of Judah, there was civil war, northern kingdom, and then the southern kingdom is Judah. Judah had some good kings, and the king we're going to read about, Jehoshaphat, is a good king. He's a good guy. So 2 Chronicles 20, we're all together. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and with them some of the Munites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Jehoshaphat's a good king, all right? So these tribes, these three tribes, they come, and they're not like little armies. These are huge armies. They're coming now to Judah. They're going to come to Jerusalem, the capital city, and move through Judah, and they're going to conquer, and they are going to pillage. These are the peoples that God said to Israel, don't try to conquer them when you come into the promised land. You remember when Israel went from the wilderness, crossed through the Jordan River, and they went into the promised land? God said, okay, conquer the peoples, and you take their land. These are the tribes God said not to. So now, all of a sudden, they're showing up, and they want to cause trouble. So they're going to invade, verse 2. Some men came and told Hasaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from far beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hezazan Tamar, that is, and Gedi. Those of you who have been to Israel, you know we are on one side of the Dead Sea. If you look on the other side, uh, that area is Ammon and Moab and En Gedi. If you went to Israel, you've, you've been to En Gedi, the springs you know, where David was. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. And set his face to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast throughout all Judah. That's a pretty good thing to do. You see the enemy coming. When you're afraid, what should you do? It says, he set his face to seek the Lord. You're facing fearful times. Set your face to seek the Lord. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. He gathers all the people. From the Lord, from all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Judah assembled, Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. So the temple had been built and they were, uh, the king was standing in front of the temple above the people and he begins this prayer. It's a beautiful prayer. He says, O Lord God, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. 
in your hand are power and might, so that none is able to do uh, to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house, dwelling place of God. We'll stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and we'll cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. So hear this prayer. Lord, we're afraid the king does the wise thing. He says, hey, we need to see God. And then they pray, and they pray God's promise. Is it God, you said, If we build this house, your presence will dwell here. And if we're in trouble, we're to come and pray and you're going to help us. And now, verse 10, this is what I told you earlier. Now, behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Look, they reward us by coming to drive us out of our land, which you have given us to inherit. Verse 12, oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we're powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. You ever feel powerless against this thing that's coming against you? Verse 13, meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. This whole generation is going to see what God is going to do. And now, we don't know what to do. He says, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. So the spirit of God now comes upon this man and he begins to prophesy. He speaks God words. God speaks directly through him. And so he said, verse 15, listen all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Dismayed could be discouraged. Do not be dismayed at this great horde for the battle is not yours, but who's? God's. The battle isn't yours, it's God's. So don't be afraid, don't be dismayed. Now this is the spirit of God speaking through this man, literally speaking through him. And he has a word for God at this time. And basically he's saying, don't worry, this is not your battle, this is God's. Uh, basically, you stand aside and you can God is rolling up his sleeves and he's gonna take care of this one. You know what I'm saying? It's not up to you. This is going to be all God. Tomorrow, verse 16, tomorrow, go down against them, and behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You'll find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. Okay, this is the wilderness. And there was a kind of a valley, we call it a wadi, you know what that is? Kind of a, a, a valley that steeply went up, and it was used sometimes as a road to Jerusalem. So he's saying, look, they're gathered down there. So I'm at Jerusalem, all right? They're gathered down here. And he says, they're gathering down there, and they plan to come up through the desert to Jerusalem. So um, verse 17, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm and hold your position. 
and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Second time that God has said that. And do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Let's just stop and think about this. How many times have we heard the promises of God? We've talked about them a lot where God says, do not be afraid. Remember those times that we've talked about that? And they're almost always accompanied with the words, I will be with you. Remember that? Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. I'm with you. I'm with you. And here again, he says, don't be afraid. I will be with you. I'm not afraid of anything if God's with me. How about you guys? We're invincible, all right? You will not need to fight in this battle, 17. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord. You know, this is kind of like spiritual warfare. The battle is the Lord's. You know, stand firm in the truth, stand firm in the faith, stand firm. Don't be dismayed at this army that's against you. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Well, I thought we weren't going to fight, so why are we going out tomorrow? Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping him. They just heard the word of God. They're down, not on their knees, but they're down in their faces before the Lord. And the Levites and the Korathites, these guys are just all part of the sacred tribe that led worship and praise and took care of the temple things. So all of these, and they made up a choir too. And so they all stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. You guys sing like that, with a very loud voice. And sometimes songs hit us in a different way, don't they? Can't you just hear where the praise just swells among us like, like, yeah, this song, you know? I will sing of the goodness of God. It's not one you could shout out much. But how many of it was right? All your, my life you've been faithful. How about you guys? I'm seeing those words and tears are coming to my eyes. And I'm thinking about all these different instances where God has been faithful. So these, these guys get up from worshiping God and they start singing, shouting to the Lord. Very loud voice, it says. And verse 20 They arose early, Jehoshaphat and the people, they arose early in the morning, and they went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and he said, Hear me, Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Believe his prophets, and you will succeed. Believe in the Lord. God's promise, I will be with you. You believe in the Lord and believe his prophets. The scripture that they had, that's part of what he's talking about. The prophets wrote these things and also that prophetic word they had just received uh, that don't worry, the Lord is with you. It's his battle, he's gonna take care of you. Believe in the Lord and believe his prophets. You wanna have victory in your life. You wanna experience God saving you. You know one thing you have to do is you have got to believe in the word of the Lord your God. It always comes back to the word and believe that God will keep his promises. Amen? Believe in the word and that God will keep his promises. 
So, verse 21, and when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing, this is a choir, of the, sing to the Lord and to praise him in holy attire. And they went before the army and they said, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast loves endures forever. So, who goes first? The praisers, yeah, that's good. The praisers, the worship team, the choir, however you want to look at it, they're put ahead. In fact, they're in their best robes. So the priests and all, they're in their gleaming white robes and they're stepping forth and they're praising the Lord. And what are they saying? They're praising God. They're saying, uh, steadfast love, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Have they seen the victory yet? Somebody tell me. No. But what are they doing? They're thanking God like it had already happened. See, that's another key to our spiritual walk is believe the Lord and not like, okay, now, Lord, then thank him like he has already happened, okay? And so they're stepping forward in the faith that, okay, we haven't seen it yet, but we are moving step by step closer to what could be disaster, but we believe the word and we believe the prophets So we're moving forward. The priests are leading first. Okay, now, now the next part. Remember I said, we're we're in the wilderness, and they're also at a place in the wilderness where they can look down. Here's the Dead Sea. They're up here high enough that they can look down at the plain where these three groups of people had gathered to attack them. They can look down on them. So they're marching out their army. They can look down and they could, down, could go down the road. But before they can do that, look at verse 22. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir who had come against Judah so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. So what had happened, I think what had happened was these three groups, they started arguing over who's going to get the spoils when they come up and they attack Jerusalem and Judah. Who's going to get it? Who's going to get what? And they started arguing about that. And I think that the inhabitants of Seir they, they probably, uh, the other two, Moab and Anaman, uh, thought, well, hey, you know, if we get rid of them, then it's just 50-50 instead of each having a third. So they attacked them and killed them. But then something happened. They started killing each other. And so by the time the choir gets there and all the armies of Israel, they're looking down and they're going, oh, my goodness, my land, what has happened? Well, the Lord said he'd fight the battle. When God fights a battle, he does a pretty good job. Amen? He did a pretty good job. And it says, then Judah came to the watchtower of the wilderness. That's where they looked. And they looked toward the horde. Behold, there were dead bodies lying on the ground. None had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, and precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. 
Not only did God say, hey, I'll take care of them, but there's Benny's to me doing the fighting for you, right? (laughs) They had so much spoil. So see, the enemy thought he was going to rob everything from them. And instead, it was all flipped around, and it ended up that the enemy was defeated, thanks be to God who gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. They were defeated, and Israel was given the spoil. They were given thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, amen? Then the result was the fear of God was put in everybody around all the neighboring countries. Verse 29, and the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, whereas God gave him rest all around. I want to go back and point out a couple of things. One thing is that when you are in the midst of seeing a battle coming, you may feel like verse 12. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? This is the point. For we are powerless against this great horde that's coming against us. How often are we put in situations in our lives? Not all the time, but we've had those times. When we are powerless, it's like, I can't do anything here. Money can't solve my problem. People can't take care of this problem. God, I'm powerless here. How do you feel when you're sick? You're in the hospital, you're incapacitated, and the doctors are scratching their heads. I'm powerless, Lord. It's all in your hands. And then the next phrase is something that no one says in the Bible any other time. Get this. This is the only time this is said in the Bible. He says, we do not know what to do. That's the only time in the Bible where someone admits that. (laughs) It's right here. ought to be the beginning of every book of the Bible. Amen? We do not know what to do. How many of you have been in that place before? Raise your hand. I'm raising both of mine, okay? Yes. I don't know what to do. But... What does he say? Finish that phrase for me there in the scripture. But what our eyes are on you. Our eyes are on you. I don't know what to do, God, but I'm going to watch you. I'm going to look at what you want me to do. The littlest thing, the slightest thing, whatever you might want me to do, I'm going to be directed by you. My eyes are on you. See, the Lord doesn't always direct us in huge ways. It just might be a little way. You might just look at us, our eyes are on you, and the Lord just goes like this, hey, just a little. And we move a little bit, and that's, that's everything. I'm not powerless anymore. Even when I feel powerless, who is with me? God is with me. So do not fear, for I'm with you. The Lord will fight our battles. Yes, we have to stand firm. We need to take our position, like the scripture said here. Take your positions, Stand firm, but believe the word of God. Believe his prophets. Believe his testimonies. Believe his promises. And victory is on the way. They thank the Lord before they saw the victory. To have an attitude of thanksgiving when people may say, why are you so thankful right now? You don't have anything to be thankful about. Your life's falling apart. What are you thankful for? 
Well, as a believer, you can enumerate a whole lot of things. I mean, we've talked about some already, right? We always have something to be thankful for. Give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever.
Like the voice of one crying in the wilderness makes straight the way of the Lord, Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries is looking for those who will partner with us in this ministry of making a path straight for the Lord directly to the hearts of listeners. If you would like to partner with us to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and deliver the saving grace of our Lord to others through volunteering, through prayer, and through donations, please call us at 602-866-8999. That's 602-866-8999. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Well, we've been studying the book of Second Thessalonians, and in chapter 2, we've come to that portion which speaks about the day of the Lord and how it can't happen unless... The apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And within that, we see that we won't be in that day until that man of lawlessness is revealed. And we've been looking at the character of this man, that he is empowered by Satan himself. And yet we know that that won't happen when we're around. We know as believers, the Lord will take us first. We are not destined for wrath. But in that same passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we see that the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. That Satan is the god of this world and that he is actively acting in opposition to God. And yet he is restrained, but he is certainly opposing. And we see that with believers. You see, we have an enemy. We have an enemy and our enemy is the Lord's enemy. We see in Matthew chapter 13 that the Lord Jesus speaks of Satan as the enemy who sowed tares. The devil is his enemy, and thus we in Christ, the devil is our enemy. And so with that in mind, one who we saw last week in the book of Ezekiel, and we'll look at it again today, who was the most powerful angel, most beautiful, perfect, anointed cherub who covers, who fell, How can we stand against this foe? How can we stand against such a powerful enemy? Well, God's word is very clear, and we have a few passages that help us understand that, and we're going to look at one today. And so would you turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to see God's instructions for us on how we will have victory over the schemes of the devil. Now, this is a mini picture, as we're going to see, of the Christian life. And as I mentioned earlier, although we will not enter into the day of the Lord, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And we have an enemy, and we see the wickedness around us. How can we stand against such a formidable foe? Well, as you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, I want to share the context of the book of Ephesians. Paul is writing to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. When I read that, I think of these saints, they're trusting the Lord, and they're faithful in Christ Jesus. Are you a faithful servant of the Lord? That's an illustration and an application of someone who's really following Jesus Christ, who's really abiding in Him. 
It's to those who have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ. They are saints and they are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now concerning the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul knows them well. He had visited them on his second missionary journey and then on his third missionary journey, he stayed there for three years, Acts 19. Now he taught for two of those years in the school of Tyrannus. And his influence for Christ was so great that the Artemis idol makers incited a riot against him. We see that in Acts chapter 19. And after leaving Ephesus, he ministered in Macedonia. And on his way back to Jerusalem, he stopped and called for the elders in Miletus, Acts 20. And we see a tearful farewell in which he exhorted them to shepherd the flock that the Lord had, because there's threats to the flock and then he gave them over to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build them up. That was the last personal contact the Apostle Paul would have with the Ephesians. But then approximately five years later, 62, 63, he would write them this letter as he is imprisoned under house arrest in Rome. Now, the overall broad context of the book of Ephesians is that in chapter 1, we have a planopy of praise. We have Paul praising God for all the spiritual blessings that we have in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. And then the Apostle Paul prays that we would have a greater wisdom and revelation, the knowledge of Christ, and resulting from that knowing Christ deeper, that we would know the hope of our calling, the incredible worth we have in Christ and God's surpassing resurrection power towards those who believe as believers. Then in chapter 2 of Ephesians, we have the Ephesian believers' position in Christ and ours, if you're a Christian. Formerly spiritually dead, but now alive in Christ, having been saved by grace. And we are now, as they were, fellow citizens being built up and built upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 3, Paul shares that his suffering for the gospel brought about this gospel. The great mystery that had been revealed was for their sake, the Ephesians' sake. And he wonderfully prays for these Ephesians again. Then in chapter 4, we have the application of our great salvation in Jesus Christ, those who are in Christ, and the commands to walk in a worthy manner of this great calling in which we've been called to walk in love, humility, and thus unity. And then we see that God gave gifts for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, certain gifts, until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. And it's in this context that body is to function, grow and mature, not be thinking like the unsaved, but renewing our minds with the truth that is in Jesus, putting on the new self. And then understanding our identity in Christ, we are to be walking in love as children of light, making the most of our time for the days are evil. And we see a command which is given and which our passage hinges upon, Ephesians 5.17. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Allow the Spirit of God to control your heart and thus your mind and actions. And then we saw the internal characteristics of a spirit-controlled life, speaking, singing, making melody in your hearts, thanking, and submitting. And then within that, we have the relationships that we have in the body of Christ and how those are applied in the context of submitting and allowing Christ to be prominent in your heart, allowing his spirit to control you. We see relationships for husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters, and then for us as believers, our relationship to our enemy, the evil one.
So with that in mind, we'll see how we can stand firm against such a great foe. Not great in elevated, but great in temporal strength. Finally, verse 10, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That's what we're going to look at primarily, but continue. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. And take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit and with this in view. Be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. Now, as we looked at Ezekiel 28 last week, I shared the same warning here that we don't want to be just looking at passages of Scripture that have to do with our enemy. We don't want to be overly focused on our enemy. We want to focus on Jesus Christ. We want to fix our eyes on him. But we need to understand what God reveals about our enemy so that we can obey his commands and be protected from our enemy. Now, if you don't know Christ, if you have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are in the domain of darkness. You are being held captive by Satan to do his will, and his will is for you to do your will, to just live your life apart from truly recognizing your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation, to live it your way. And yet when we turn to God for salvation, trusting in Jesus Christ, we are delivered from darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We're delivered from the dominion of darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, as Paul would share in Acts chapter 26. And if you are the Lord's child, then Satan can't touch you apart from what God allows. But yet we're going to see that when we sin, we put ourselves in a vulnerable situation with our enemy. But Satan needs permission. You might remember from Luke chapter 22 that Jesus informed Peter, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you turn, strengthen your brothers. We know from the book of Job that Satan needed permission to mess with Job. And God gave it to him. And he did mess with Job pretty significantly as we're going to see. We're going to see that Satan even had power when we get to Second Thessalonians to do some miraculous things as he brought the wind and stuff against Job's family and killed them, if you remember that. The reality is we have a formable foe, but yet greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, we need to remember that this passage is on the heels of what I shared earlier, that we are not to be drunk with wine, but filled with the Spirit. We're to be controlled by the Spirit of God. You can't do anything that we're going to look at today if you're not yielding your heart to the Lord, allowing His Word to renew your mind. And so how can we have victory against our spiritual enemy? How can that be? 
Notice first of all, in verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God. These are commands from God to us. Two commands, two imperative commands. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might and put on the full armor of God. We as believers, those who name the name of Christ, those who are in Christ are commanded to do this. We're commanded to do this. We're to be strong in the Lord and we're to put on the full armor of God. Now, these two commands we're going to look at more closely in a minute, but go down to the reason number three in your outlines. I want to look at that first. Why should we obey? We actually don't need to know why. God doesn't have to tell us why we need to do things. You know, he shares in his word many commands, and oftentimes he doesn't tell us why, and we need to take it on his character and his goodness and his kindness and his love that it's good for us and it's right for us to obey his commands. But yet, there are times in which he gives us the reason why we should do what he is commanding us to do. And he does that here. Notice we have this finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might put on the full armor. But why? Well, we have an enemy. We have a powerful foe, a deceitful, scheming tempter. We are in a battle that started when we believed and it will not end until we die or Christ comes to take us and deliver us from the wrath to come. Notice he says here, we are to do this so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Middle of verse 11, that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The term be able speaks of given the power to do something, the ability to do something. So that we would be able to do so, that we would be able to be strengthened and thus stand firm against the schemes. The term stand firm is used quite a bit in our passage. Notice in verse 11, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to, as I just read, stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, therefore take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, although we are in a spiritual war, and when you think of war, you think of those who are on the offensive usually win, but here we are on the defense, as we will say. We are not on the offense. We are to stand our ground, as we will say, in Christ. We are not to seek out and battle with Satan and his minions. We are commanded to stand firm, and that term in a military context spoke of holding a critical position in a battlefield. Stand firm. Now, what are we to stand firm against? Notice this, end of verse 11, the schemes of the devil. The schemes, it is his schemes that we are to stand firm against. It is what he is doing and trying to do to us that we are to stand against, as we will say. We are to stand, literally it says, to stand towards the schemes of the devil. We're to address them, in a sense, firmly in the context of the commands in which God has given, to be strengthened and to put on the full armor that we would be able 
to stand. So we don't just go out and stand against the schemes of the devil. We need to do something that we would be able to thus stand against the schemes of the devil and not fall because of his schemes taking root in our lives because we did not abide and trust in Christ and put on the full armor. So we're to stand firm against his schemes. Now, although Satan is a defeated foe, he is actively scheming against the people of God. And the term schemes in Greek, methodia, speaks of his method or procedures, the way he does things, and he does them the same, as we're going to see. It's his stratagems, his devious methods, his tricks. It's all the way he does things. And we need to obey those commands, which we'll look at again when we finish up here, so that we could stand firm against his schemes. Well, what are his schemes? What are the things that we would stand firm against? What does God say in his word? What does he share for us? Well, to understand his schemes, we need to understand what God says about him and his methods. We saw this last week, so let's just review this. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel 28, where we see Lucifer's life story. And you might remember we saw his sinless beginning. Verse 11, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up the lamentation against the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. And remember, it goes beyond the king of Tyre to the power behind him. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the very garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship and settings of your sockets, that's timbrels and pipes, was in you on the day you were created. They were prepared. Sinless beginning. He was created perfect in beauty and wisdom. He was in Eden. He was covered with jewels reflecting God's glory. He was Lucifer, the light bearer. He was created to praise God in song. And then we saw his privileges. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked amidst the stones of fire. He was the special cherub. That's an angel who covers. He was on God's holy mountain. He seems to have had the grandest of privileges. And then we see, although he was created perfect and blameless, he fell because of his great pride. And he sinned against the living God and was cast out of heaven for all to be appalled at him who know him. Ezekiel 28, verse 15, You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned or polluted your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth. In the eyes of all who see you, all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will be no more. We know from the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, that he has fallen. How you have fallen, verse 12 
from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit in the mount of the assembly, the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That's Isaiah speaking of Lucifer. Nevertheless, you will be thrown down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. We see in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, that Satan took a third of the angels when he was cast out of heaven. Now we know he has access. He appears up and down, but he will eventually be thrown out for good. The end of Revelation chapter 12. So then we have the most beautiful, wise, powerful angel having fallen who now continually schemes against the people of God. If you are a believer in some manner or fashion, Satan through his minions or himself, however it is, we don't know if he directly to any of us, you know, but we know we are tempted by him. We see it in scripture. We see that he schemes against us. And we are not to be ignorant of his schemes. The Apostle Paul said that in 2 Corinthians 2.11. We are not ignorant of his schemes. It's not that we don't know about how he functions. But yet we can, on a practical basis, forget. And we need to be reminded so that we would stand firm in the Lord, so that we would put on the full armor of God, that we would be able to stand against those schemes. Well, what are his schemes? Again, his names actually give us a clue. Revelation chapter 20, Revelation 20, verse 1, I'll read this to you. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the abyss, a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He's called the dragon. That's a metaphoric description that likens him to a monster, monstrous reptile. Second, he's called the serpent of old, metaphorically speaks of that cunning serpent, the snake. It refers to the wicked deception we see, certainly in the garden. Third, he is called the devil, diabolos, the throw-through. He divides and separates. And lastly, is called Satan, and the word Satan means adversary. He is the constant enemy of God's people, and that's what his name means, adversary. If you've ever had an adversary, they are against you. They're constantly against you. He is the one who deceives the whole world, and he is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses believers day and night before God. Look at this in Revelation chapter 12. And we see here in Revelation 12, the context is there was war in heaven and Michael and his archangels, the devil and his, and the devil lost and he is thrown out. This is in the middle of the seven-year tribulation. He is thrown to earth.
Ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week. <music>